We're going to continue on in Matthew chapter 17. Yep. really booming. <laughs> Matthew chapter 17. So in, in Matthew, we've been talking about like Christ as king. He speaks of his kingdom, and Jesus Christ is his king. And we made this transition in the book of Matthew when he starts talking about his church, his people. He said, you know, we studied uh, Peter's confession. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say I am? And he says, you are the, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, yes, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. And then and Jesus starts talking about, so what does this mean? You're going to take your cross and you're going to follow me. You're going to identify with me. You're going to suffer with me, you are my people in this world. And then in chapter 17, we see Christ exalted, Christ in his glory, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He shines with the, the glory of God on the mountain. He shines brightly, and, and they see Moses and Elijah come, who Moses representing the law, and Elijah representing like the prophet of prophets. And, and they, in a sense, are submissive to him. They Come to him, to speak with him. And then the voice comes from heaven. The Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And so we, we are literally just, on the, like, if, you know, this is probably where the phrase the mountaintop experience comes from. You're on, you're on the mountain, and here is Christ, resplendent with glory, and the Father speaking in adoration of his Son, and says, you too, you too, glorify him, listen to him. And so, on the heels of this great moment, they start walking down the mountain, and then in verse 14, we pick up. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So coming off the heels of this triumphant moment, his disciples and Jesus, they descend and they're met with frustration and suffering. Now, there's this boy, he is under demon possession, and he's in, he's in, a, in a bad way, he's in a plight. And so literally, Jesus comes from this mountain of transfiguration to the valley 
of our need. From, from glory into the morass of like just how horrible life is. Uh, one commentator says, Jesus and his three disciples move back down into a demon-infested world where the demonic child is the perfect symbol of a world gone wrong because of its refusal to acknowledge the rule and sovereignty of God. The whole reason demons and Satan have power and influence over this world is because, as we were told, we disobeyed the Creator. We turned our allegiance from the Creator. And so now we're told that we are under the power of Satan. Now, as Western, rationalistic Americans, you think, demons? Really? Sounds like this guy has mental problems and needs medication. Um, someone was asking me just the other day, like, why don't we see more demon possession? And um, there very well could be demon possession. And I, I feel like there have been moments where I've talked to people that I thought were demon-possessed and seen things that were very disturbing. Interestingly enough, I never saw this in my, like, my day-to-day life. I saw this when I was like on the street evangelizing people. That's when it comes out. Like, so it was like when, when you're pushing against the darkness is when, it's, as it were, the darkness is pushing back on you. And so, but I think America, I mean, come on. Like we're waiting for a sucker punch and Satan's got us in a chokehold. Right? He's he's got us he doesn't like we don't need in one sense the demonic oppression, we've got Netflix and cable and <laughs> our careers and all these great and glorious things that sometimes like Satan controls directly, sometimes it seems like more indirectly. That that the Bible says that the Satan rules the hearts. He blinds the eyes of the unbelievers from seeing the glory of God. He blinds them. Um, you remember Keith Green? I don't know if you remember Keith Green. I shouldn't even remember Keith Green because he was dead by the time I... <laughs> but being raised in a family who liked Keith Green. He's, he has a song, You Don't Believe in Me Anymore. And it's written from the perspective of the devil. It's like, America, you just don't believe in me anymore. Thanks. <laughs> that makes it easy on me. Because <laughs> now I don't have to worry about it. Like, I could just put this out. And so, Christ came, he said he came to undo the works of the devil. That, that whether we acknowledge it or not, we are bound in our sin, we are bound by the power of Satan as a culture, as a community, and as individuals. And when Christ comes, he breaks all of that. Now, in particular, we find that this boy, if you, there's a, there's Mark and Luke. They also talk about this parable. And they actually go into it in like much, much more detail in this particular instance. But um, they say that this boy was mute. He couldn't speak. Um, except for when he would cry out. But when he'd cry out, he would fall on a fire or he'd fall into water. And so it seems like people say, well, those are just the signs of epilepsy. Um, but the, the family, they, they actually refer to it as lunacy. Like he acts like a lunatic. He's doing fine. But all of a sudden, like, he just, like, goes crazy. And then when he goes crazy, it's not that he just goes crazy. He, like, is, like, this self-destructive behavior. He falls into fire. He falls in the water. And, and one of the things that they notice is just, it's not so much that the boy was acting out so much he was act, being acted upon. It wasn't that he's acting out. He's being acted upon. 
And, and even Jesus, when he addresses the issue, doesn't say, like, no, he has mental problems. Says, Jesus acknowledges it with him, like, oh, no, it's a demon. That's for sure. And when he rebukes, he rebukes a demon and sets the boy free from, from this. So you can imagine, then, the constant fear and the constant frustration of this boy and his father. Like you never know what's going to happen from moment to moment. This kid's just going to like go berserk and like do something destructive. And so like the father's frustrated, perhaps the boy is frustrated, and then there's the disciples. Okay. Since Jesus was up on the mountain, the father took the boy to the disciples, and the disciples were unable to cast out the demon, which is really surprising for two reasons. First of all, a few chapters ago, Jesus sent the disciples out on a mission. And they were casting out demons. They were healing people. They went with the power and authority of Jesus, and it was happening. And all of a sudden, they can't. And then just previously, second reason, just previously, Jesus had just said, like, you're going to be my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Well, look, here's their first encounter with the gates of hell. <laughs> and they're powerless. Can't do anything about it. So you can imagine then that the disciples are frustrated and the father's like, well, forget you. Here's Jesus. I'm not going to deal with you guys anymore. Let's just go to Jesus and see what he can do about it. So the father's frustrated. The disciples are frustrated. I, I wouldn't even be surprised. This would be my reaction. Like, I'd be mad at Jesus. Like, you know, <laughs> we need to help Jesus. And what were you doing? Up on the mountain. So, like, just, like it's just this bad moment. It's like you come home and just, like, chaos is ensuing. Like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right, time to intervene. But get this. Do you notice, notice Jesus' response? He's frustrated. <laughs> now, this is a little bit different. You know, when Jesus gets frustrated, it's a little bit different. <laughs> Jesus speaks with divine frustration. I, I was a little surprised at this reaction because you think Jesus is so compassionate towards people. But here, there's just something about the situation that just really makes him, he assesses the situation, he sees something that's frustrating. He borrows language from Deuteronomy when God gives Moses a song. So Deuteronomy, you know, God just brought the people of Israel through the wilderness and he establishes law with them and he's reestablishing his covenant. They're about to go in the promised land. And God gives Moses a song which basically says, you're going to blow it. And you are a faithless and perverted generation. How long am I to bear with you? And Jesus borrows those words of God to speak to these people just now. Jesus sees that there's something in their hearts, something like much deeper that's going on. And he, and he calls it out. It's like, oh, faithless and twisted generation. And like that, oh, like that's like really heights, like, ah, you guys are just faithless and twisted. Like, no, it's like, you guys, you are faithless and twisted generation. And, and it's just like this, this broad statement. It's not just like he's, it's not just like necessarily pointing out the disciples, not just pointing out necessarily the, the father and his son. He's just like, just the whole scene that he has been with here in Israel. Oh, generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Which I think is actually a very terrifying statement. 
how much longer will I endure this? One person reflected on this. He said, we, we tend to locate our problems in less deep locations. Like, let me, t- like, let me tell you what the problem is. If so-and-so hadn't done such and such, then, like, you know, all would be good. We tend to locate our problems in less deep locations. We, we locate, like, it's our temper, it's our weaknesses, it's our bad habits, our lusts, our addictions, our moods, hangry, right? Our vanities, always our ambitions. And, like, and that's where we identify the issue. But the fact that the root of all such bitter fruit is our failure to believe God. The heart of our addictions and our lusts and our moods and our temper boils down even deeper to the fact that we fail to believe and honor God. So Jesus says, yeah, you're all frustrated. Oh, yeah, you could not cast out this demon. I'll tell you what the issue is. You're faithless, and you are twisted. Now, twisted is like you're taking good things, and you're turning them to, reason, like, turning them to bad things. Like, they're good things, but you use them for bad means. Like, it was never meant for that. You're overdoing it, or you're using it for the wrong purposes. You've twisted what I have given you. Now, imagine, just imagine, Jesus. Like, if you would imagine, the most blessed generation of the world thus far is the one that sees Emmanuel, God with us, who sees Jesus healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, at times, he raises the dead and, and, and teaches them about God's kingdom. And then there's the, the uh, disciples who are even closer, who not only get to see this, but then they get to, like, to have these inner conversations with Jesus, and he gets to explain things to them. And so you would think, like, if anybody should not be demonstrating unbelief, it'd be the disciples. It'd be this generation. But still, still that problem exists in their hearts. They're just like their forefathers, in other words. Like what could be said of the Israels acting like stiff-necked people in the wilderness could be said about them in this generation. That though they experience great blessings, though they hear the words of God, what? In a moment, they turn around and they're off doing their own thing. And what could be said about that generation, what could be said to be about the stiff-necked people in Israel could certainly be said of us. That we experience the goodness of God. We experience the word of God. We see Christ in the scriptures. We experience fellowship with his people. We hear the word of God proclaimed. And then Monday morning, what? We behaved as if nothing had happened. Like the first stressful thing comes up and like we're just blowing it way out of proportion. <laughs> I speak from experience. Jesus says, how long? Am I to bear with you? How long is God going to be put up with unbelief? You blew it. Now what? Game over? Does does he walk away? Does Jesus say, I I just, I call it, back to the mountain, I'm gone? No. He says, bring him to me. There is still mercy and power. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And despite the frustrations he experienced with us, he still comes near and he heals. So in verse 18 it says, 
And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. When uh, Mark and Luke recount this, when the demon comes near Jesus, the kid goes into convulsions again and just like starts freaking out. And, and Jesus and, and tries to throw him on the fire. Like, it's, it's like this crazy scene, and Jesus says, rebukes the demon, and he comes out, and immediately the boy is calm. Immediately the boy gets back up, and everything is fine. The boy is healed. The power of Satan is broken. Now, in Mark and Luke, they, they really emphasize like this element of like Jesus having control over the situation, Jesus having compassion. They bring up the unbelief. They do. But Matthew really, at this point, like zones in on unbelief. Okay, so Matthew and Mark, they, when, they, when they call the situation, they're like, okay, the situation with this boy, no, it was a great healing. But Matthew, he's really interested in saying, do you, remember, do you know why I really, I'm speaking like Matthew. His name was Levi, by the way. Like, do you know what I really remember about this conversation? I remember about this, it was our unbelief and what Jesus said about that. And so he kind of gives us more details about this conversation. And he really puts a lot of emphasis right here. The disciples come and they have a question. Like, okay, after the whole scene's done, after everybody's happy and everybody goes away, they get Jesus side by side and they say, why? Why were we unable to do this? They're genuinely confused. I mean, I'm probably embarrassed, right? Maybe they're beginning to doubt a little bit because after all these great things and suddenly they can't do it, maybe they doubt. And so Jesus goes back to the heart of the matter. He says, it's your unbelief. Well, actually, he doesn't say unbelief. He says, it's your little faith. Um, some of your translations might have unbelief, little faith. It's the idea. But it's different than the word above. O twisted gener- generation, you have no faith. But to the ge- disciples, he says, you have little faith. Like there's something there. Not thick enough. Now, this has actually been a theme in Matthew. O ye of little faith. It's like been coming up again and again and again and again and again. The fifth time. So, Let's just summarize the instances when Jesus says to the disciples, O ye of little faith. Starts on the Sermon on the Mount. So on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically says, Hey, you don't have to be like your surrounding culture. What are they concerned with? What you'll wear, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, you know, just things that are important, right? Important things. But they're consumed by them. This is like what twisted means. They're just consumed by them. And they don't seek after the kingdom of God. But I tell you, Seek after the kingdom of God, and God will provide all these things. Oh, you can't do that? Oh, ye of little faith. So give up your pursuit, like your, your full focus of pursuing these things. Seek full focus after the kingdom, and don't worry. God clothes the lilies. God feeds the birds. Don't, don't doubt that. And if you do, then you are of little faith. Okay. The next instance is Matthew 8. So the disciples are in a boat. They're going with Jesus. And they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And a big storm starts. And they think they're going to drown. You remember this one? And so they finally say, Jesus, we're going to die. We are professional fishermen. Let us tell you something. This is bad news. And so Jesus wakes up, looks at the storm, and says, O ye of little faith. And stands up and calmly rebukes the storm, and the storm stops, and they're just in complete, utter shock at what just happened. 
O ye of little faith. Matthew 14, they're on the Sea of Galilee again, noticing a pattern. <laughs> Crossing that water is treacherous. They're on, the, they're on the Sea of Galilee, there's a storm, but this time Jesus isn't with them. Okay, so a little bit of an escalation. And they're thinking, like, bad news yet again. But this time, Jesus is walking on water. And Peter says, first I think it's ghost. Peter says, if you're really Jesus, then command me to walk out on the water. And Jesus says, all right, come on out. And so Peter walks on the water and then freaks out, starts falling in the water. says, Lord, save me. And Jesus grabs him, pulls him back up and says, oh, ye of little faith. And again, Matthew 16, um, the disciples left, went across the Sea of Galilee, noticing a pattern. They, they went across the Sea of Galilee and they forgot their food. And so they're, they're sitting there freaking out, like, like all caught up with the fact that they forgot to bring food. Now, this was after Jesus had just fed a crowd and then fed a crowd again, like miraculously. And so Jesus says, um, don't you remember how I provided food and then had provided enough baskets left over for you to have food? Oh, you have little faith. So, what do these situations have in common? The first thing is that in all these situations, the disciples are up against tasks and challenges that completely defy human resource. Like, the pragmatic, rational response to all these situations was, oh my gosh, we're going to (laughs) die. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to have food. I'm not going to have clothes. Oh my goodness, there's a guy walking on the water and I'm going to drown. Oh my goodness, (laughs) we're out of food again. Like, these are rational responses. And, And Jesus tells them, like, well, no, I can take care of these things. But in all these things, they're asked to do things that really don't make 100% sense. Like, if you were going to, like, hedge your bets, you would not do what Jesus is asking them to do. Yet he does. Second of all, as these instances progress through Matthew, one of the hopes would be that they would have learned from previous instances that Jesus had things under control. Okay, so the first time, I think it kind of makes sense. Oh, you have little faith. Oh, yeah, I guess I do have little faith. Well, next time. And then the next time, you're like, oh, you have little faith. You're like, ah, that's right. But I've learned. Last time Jesus fed, we got this. And, there, and like, so the third time comes, like, I got this, trust Jesus. The next time, I got this, trust Jesus. But it's just like, again and again and again, little faith, little faith, little faith, little faith. Are you guys still here at little faith? Which might then kind of give you some indication of why Jesus is starting to get frustrated with them. And might also explain his next little parable. So in verse 20 he says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now at first, this is really confusing. Because when I first read this, this is what I hear Jesus saying. You know what your problem is? You have little faith. Do you know what the solution is? Have little faith. You're like, I'm so stuck. Come again, Jesus. <laughs> and so, so I'm sitting there like just banging my head on my Bible like, what is he saying? I do not understand. But then someone brought up the fact like, well, yes, the mustard seed was the smallest plant. And so if you think like mustard seed is just small, like small faith, you've only got half the picture. Because what was the other thing about mustard seeds that was so amazing? Yeah, that these things would just explode into huge plants quickly. So it's, it's almost like saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You start with small faith, 
but like a mustard seed, is supposed to bear great fruit and be like the biggest plant in the garden. You need faith like a mustard seed. Start small, grow big. Now, what Jesus seems to be getting at, besides the fact, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. And by the way, this topic of little faith never comes up again in Matthew. I'm not saying they got it all the way, but I think Jesus had made this point. They still had their moments. Even in Acts, they still had their moments. I'm sure to their graves, they still had their moments. But their faith was bolder. But what Jesus is getting in that is to say, your faith has so much potential. Like a mustard seed, it has so much potential. You can't keep stopping when things get difficult or look impossible. If I've called you to do this, if I've called you to be here, don't stop. Little faith, trust God when things generally make sense, or at least require small steps of faith. Little faith, because we all start with little faith, and there's moments that we have little faith, where God, but then like, if you've spent time with, um, uh, I had a friend who liked to say, I love it when people get saved, I take them out and evangelize people. Because every time I go out with a new Christian, we always had really great conversations with people that seemed to make a lot of progress. Now, with I go out there, who've done this many, 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 many times, I don't always have good conversations, but God has always been faithful. With new believers, when new believers go out, it's like he's always faithful. We always have really good conversations with unbelievers. So I go out. <laughs> and, and, you, and you can kind of see it. It's like, as it were, it's like new believers, little faith. God's going to provide. Just help them get through that moment. So this one time I was going out with a college group, and we were going to go to Arts Alive and go spread the gospel. And I'm in the car, and someone says, what are we doing? I'm like, oh, we're going to go share the gospel. And she goes, oh, I thought we're going to Arts Alive. <laughs> um, she, so I was like, well, no, we're, we're, I mean, we are, but we're going to go share the gospel. And she says, oh. I was like, um, how long have you been saved? She goes, a couple weeks. Oh, <laughs> okay. So like as we're driving, I, and I actually was not going to be there for this time. I was actually just car, giving him a carpool. And I said, okay, well, um, stick with so-and-so and just listen to what they do. And you can pray. That'd be good enough. And then look at the guys like, and don't lose her. <laughs> Which I should have known, just knowing the guy. He lost her, by the way. She, and she says, so we're talking about it, and she's like, okay, okay, no, I'm good. I think I'd be fine so long as no one yells at me. Okay, good enough. I've never had anybody yell at me. I think we're fine. People are generally polite. They'll say, no, thank you, and walk away. So she gets there. I talked to her a week later. I said, how did it go? She goes, people yelled at me. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, people have never. And so she's so like, like I'm looking at the guy like, you lost her? I'm like, sorry. <laughs> and so she goes out, and she says, like, so I'm like, so she goes out, and she gets separated, and this homeless guy walks up to her and says, what's John 3.16? She's like, I don't know. And he starts just, like, screaming at her about it. And she's just, like, totally shocked, walks away, like, gets out of the situation. She's like, okay, okay, okay. She, try, she goes, like, calms down and walks again, and another 
homeless person walks up and says, what's John 3.16? She can't, she's like, I don't know. Like, okay, do you notice it? John 3.16, John 3.16. Okay. And she's like, I don't know. Screamed out again. And she's like, that was it. Like, she like broke down. And so she went and they found uh, an older man who was there who was um, a good Christian. Michael Gent? I don't know if he's. And he has, and like his evangelism style that night was to hold a huge sign made of uh, plywood that says Jesus saves with some scripture on it. And he was just standing there. And she walked up to him and he says, are you doing all right? She goes, no. And she starts crying and he prays for her. And, and so they, they're sitting there having, like, she's like kind of recuperating. And there are two girls standing kind of nearby. And she says, I guess I'll try one more time. This girl's got guts. And so she goes and she starts speaking with them. And these are two girls. We'd known about them when we evangelized. They were Wiccans. And I'll tell you one thing. Wiccans don't like talking to guys. Um, it's, it's kind of like a neo-pagan feminism. So we would try to talk to them, and they just have nothing to do with it. She starts talking to them. She's making headway. She was raised in a Wiccan household. Her mom was Wiccan. She had been Wiccan. God had saved her out of being a Wiccan. And God had put her in the situation the right time, right place to talk to some Wiccans. And her faith just took off. She had little faith, but God blessed her. So when I said, like, when we start, like, when my friend said, I like to go out with new believers, I kind of get a sense of what he's saying, because God is faithful. Now, there's the rest of us who are now supposed to be mature in our faith who will speak to people, and it just seems like we're up against walls, 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 and making no fruit, and you want to give up. We, however, should have great faith that God can still do the impossible even against frustrating situations. Now, Matthew is giving us like all the insight to what Jesus said. Like, you know, you had unbelief if your faith like much seed. When Peter recounts it in Mark, because Peter was the person who gave Mark. Um, the information about what happened. Peter's like, oh yeah, I remember that. We couldn't cast him out. And so here's, here's Mark's, or, uh, Peter's summary of the situation. And it's, it's, it's like pretty much saying the same thing. Jesus says, did you pray? <laughs> Jesus, we couldn't cast out the demon. Did you pray? Oh, yeah, that probably would have been good. And this is not either or. Jesus probably said both things and he's getting at the same point. That they're Lack of faith was acknowledged in their prayerlessness. Like in this situation, they needed God like nothing else. They did not turn to God. So what does prayer indicate? Prayer indicates reliance on God. What does a lack of prayerlessness indicate? Self-reliance. They thought they had this. They thought they had it in and of themselves. No. Jesus said you had to do it with prayer. You needed to pray. That would have showed your reliance and your dependence on God to do the impossible task. Now, probably in some of yours, okay, you either have a footnote in your Bible or it will straight up say this. This one only comes out with prayer or fasting. There's like this fasting tagged on. Um, so that is probably not originally in the text. It's one of the ones. So every once in a while, things get added into our copies. Okay, so back up a second. So their families are copies of manuscripts, and they're all over, like, Europe and Asia and North Africa. And every once in a while, in, like, one of these families gets an errand. It just kind of gets propagated. 
Okay, so one of, the, one of the first ones that were collected in the 1500s had this in there. But then when they found the rest of them, they didn't have and fasting. And they said, oh, hmm, maybe that wasn't in there. So, and so that's why your Bible says, footnote, some manuscripts say and fasting. The theory goes like this, Christians, be honest. Like the liberals, like the liberal scholars, they know. Um, and they like to talk about it. So if we think we might have something like mm, 50-50 maybe, I'm not sure if that's in there, just acknowledge it. Read your footnotes and realize that. On the other side, and Mark says, prayer. Fasting's not brought up. Um, so um, one of the things about it, when you have like these footnotes that it might be this or that, it really doesn't change a whole lot. What's he getting at? Rely on God. That's how it happens. So there's this theme. And it, it kind of like your, your translations, they're very good English, but you kind of miss this one little thing. When the Father comes to Jesus, he literally says, your disciples are unable. The disciples come to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, we were unable. Unable, unable. And then when Jesus says, if you have the grain of mustard seeds, nothing will be impossible for you. Impossible is very good English. But he literally says, nothing will be unable for you. So the theme had been your inability, your inability. He says, if you have faith, like a mustard seed, lies on God and grows as he brings you these things, nothing will be unable for you. Christ is the head of the church. The transfiguration, the power and the glory of Jesus Christ is on display. God says, listen to him. And we want to know where is our competence? Where is our ability as Christians in your daily life, as a church, as a, as a community of believers in Fortuna, trying to push the gospel into a lost world, where does our ability come from? Because ultimately, we are called to impossible tasks. To overcome sin in your life, in and of yourself, is an impossible task. It doesn't happen without reliance on God and prayer. To share the gospel and for someone to get saved is an impossible task. Be it you're sharing the gospel with a Mayberry Pharisee or a neo-pagan hipster on the plaza. Like both situations, equally impossible, hearts of stone, people who do not want to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power, the ability of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Where does our ability come from? It comes from God and his gospel. That's why Paul would say, I don't have to armbar people with arguments ultimately. I don't speak with words of wisdom. I don't act like the great debaters of the age. I proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And God starts breaking down hard hearts. You know, in the we had the first and, great awake, first and second great awakening in America. The first great awakening. Before it, so it was like mid-1700s, before it, you know what pastors and churches were doing? Preaching the word, praying, evangelizing. And they were getting nothing. Hardly anybody was getting saved. Things were getting worse. Then all of a sudden, people started getting saved by the droves by the droves. You know what changed? 
Well, on the, do you know what the church was doing? Preaching the word, praying, evangelizing. The difference was the Spirit of God was moving in power. Sometimes faith looks like this. As Hebrew puts it, people conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Oh yeah, man, those mountains are moving, right? But then, in the next breath, Hebrew says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And this is faith. In some sense, which takes the greater faith? It may be a false dichotomy, probably both, because I'm not sure <laughs> I would want to step into a uh, furnace of fire that takes great faith. I'm not downplaying that. But great faith also looks like suffering faithfully to the end. Of going against hard situations, praying for things that seem to never bear fruit, but doing it faithfully to the end. Trusting that God's promises are true. And Hebrew says, they were all commended for their faith. The ones who did great things and the ones who seemingly did not do great things, but great things were happening in the eyes of God and the eyes of his kingdom. So they ask then, where are we at as individuals, as a congregation? Because I feel like disappointment and frustrations can squelch our zeal for pursuing the kingdom of God. Like, yeah, I did that. Nothing much. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sin was really hard. Prayed a lot. Read the Bible a lot. Still struggle with it. Kind of just stopped fighting it. Or... I've been praying for this person forever. I've been sharing this gospel with this person forever. Nothing's come out of it. I've just given up. Or we could be distracted. You know, suicide, like that twisted. Like, we got distracted by the things of life that we have stopped seeking the kingdom of God. And we are of little faith. We're not pushing forward. We're not trusting God and obeying God. What is the solution? Because in those moments, I feel like, like this is what I feel like. When you don't read your Bible for a little bit, you're like, you know, I'm not going to read my Bible again. Because what do you feel? Like, why does it matter? God's probably mad at me. Like, you know, you got this whole thing. And, and, and Jesus is kind of in a sense, like, how long am I to bear with you? Come to me. <laughs> Come to me still. There's still mercy and grace because Jesus didn't just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration into the Valley of the Dark. He came from the glories of heaven to this earth to bear our sins. Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. You need inspiration. You need hope. Look to the exalted and glorified Christ who endured and suffered 
for our sake. The Bible reminds us again and again, we're in, a way, uh, we're in a race. We're at war. There's no time for little faith. There's no time for lethargy. We've got to get to it. And there's a prayer from an unknown Christian, but it was preserved. It says this. Oh God, you have taught me that Christ has all fullness and plenty of the Spirit. The all fullness that I lack in myself is in him. He, having perfect knowledge, perfect grace and righteousness to make me see, to make me righteous, to give me fullness, that it's my duty out of sense of emptiness to go to Christ, to possess and enjoy his fullness as mine, as if I had it in myself because it is for me in him. So to this end, O oh God, establish me in Christ, settle me in Christ, assure me with certainty that all this is mine, for this only will fill my heart with joy and peace. So if you feel like you're lacking resource, the resource is there for you in abundance. It is found in Jesus Christ. Come to his throne and you'll find mercy and grace in our time of need. So as we come to communion, let's share together.